This morning and this week, we have a wonderful opportunity of beginning a new series. And the series is called Healthy Vision, Healthy Church. Ah, see, 2020, new vision, new year, new vision, right? Exactly, 2020 vision. I mean, how many times have you heard that one, right? So, um, really, it's, it's about having a healthy vision for a healthy church. Just putting like the little conjunction four in there didn't look good on the graphics. That's why we didn't put the four, right? The, the point is, over the next uh, couple of months, few months, we're, we're going to be forecasting, telecasting. What, what does a... What does a healthy eyesight for a healthy church look like? Like, what are the barometers? What are the markers? What are the identifiers? What are the, the, the priorities and the ministries and the missions? Like, what, what is the focus of a church if the church is going to be healthy? And so, we're going to be talking and walking through that over the next, as I said, a few months. Um, so today is going to be kind of the launching message of that. And um, let's see if you can figure out on the way why I chose this passage to begin this, this series. If you, if you don't figure it out along the way, it's okay. I, I tell you at the end. But we're going to hold on to it. So that means at some point, like all of a sudden, you're going to hear the mystery unfold. That means you have to stay awake and stay alert. But uh, we're going to be in ma- mainly Isaiah 6 today. So if you want to turn to Isaiah 6 in your scriptures, feel free to do so while I do the unimportant introduction part about a personal story, right? So um, in eighth grade, I had the opportunity to visit our nation's capital with my schoolmates. And it, was, um, and it was an incredible experience. It really was. Seeing all of the monuments and the memorials, like standing at the Vietnam Memorial was special. Going to the Smithsonian Museum, I remember the first time I went to the, to the Smithsonian, I can't remember what it was, I think it was technology or something like that, and they had this big um, Boeing 747 just like hanging from the sky, and I thought it was terrifying. Like, what are they false? But it was awesome, right, to see that. But there were two locations that truly stood out above all others. The first was at Ford Theater when I saw the seat in which Lincoln was assassinated in. You see the bloodstain still remaining there. It was quite surreal to see that. And the second, and I thought nothing was going to top that, but then the second was at the Holocaust Museum. That was a truly surreal experience, one that I will never forget. I mean, walking through all of the displays, reading the atrocities that occurred, seeing the images that were preserved down to our day, listening to the stories told because they actually had survivors of the Holocaust there, over 70 survivors of the Holocaust there to tell their stories, right? Just an unbelievable experience. But then I got near the final, the end of the displays, and that's when I walked into a room that really made an impact on me. I don't know if they still have it today, um, but if you've had this opportunity, it it was incredible. Because the first sense that was alerted as I walked into this room was the smell. And the smell was pungent. It was overwhelming. It was noxious. There was this waft that overtook my nostrils. And then in a quick moment, you'd, you'd take note, or I took note of the scent and I realized that it was the smell of leather, just an overwhelming smell of leather. And right in front of you in that room on the final display, there's two long display cases, one on the left and one on the right, or the left and the right from where you're standing. And filling those displays is an uncountable amount of old, decaying, and rotting leather shoes. The 4,000 shoes that are on display at the museum in Washington, Washington D.C. is just a small selection of a mass of shoes that were discovered at uh, Majdanek 
concentration camp in 1944. See, before sending their victims into the furnace or into the gas chamber, the, the Nazi guardsmen would take the shoes off of their victims and pile them up because they're, they want to be resourceful and want to reuse them if they could along the way. And so these shoes would just pile up and pile up and pile up until there could be use of them. And there was this massive pile when the Allied forces came in and, uh, and freed that encampment. So, on the wall behind these piles of shoes that were a remnant, a, rem, a reminder of the events that took place there were these words. It says, we are the shoes. We are the last witnesses. We are the shoes from grandchildren and grandfathers, from Prague, Paris, and Amsterdam. And because we are only made of fabric and leather and not of blood and flesh, each one of us avoided the hellfire. It was incredible to walk into this room with my classmates. We're eight eighth graders, right? I don't know, how old are you in eighth grade? Twelve? Thirteen? And it's incredible to see a bunch of twelve and thirteen year olds just suddenly silenced. Suddenly stopped. Because no one wanted to cough, no one wanted to sneeze, no one wanted to make a joke and break the, the atmosphere that was there. It was a... It truly was this sacred, awful, awful, as in like awe, A-W-E, full, it was full of awe, room, to think about all of the, the feet that had filled those shoes at some point, all of the names that some, so many of them unaccounted for, unknown, as it says, the grandfathers, the grandchildren, the dreams, the hopes, the husbands and wives, all of them just vanquished in a demonstration of what can happen in the heart of man when given over to total evil. And in that moment, no one, again, no one wanted to interrupt what was happening in the atmosphere in that place. Now I hope and I'm sure that you've experienced a moment like that in your life. A moment that interrupts you in a jarring, self-examining way. I hope so. Whether it was in something like that, which is kind of like a horrific moment, or something that was an awe-inspiring moment, like going to the top of a mountain and looking out at the views. I hope you've had many of those experiences in your life. Maybe it was the first time that you, you held your, your child. That's a beautiful moment, right? And all of a sudden you get this surreal understanding that life is more important than day-to-day -day activities and work and balancing checkbooks and while all those things are all important we know that life has so much more meaning so much more value so much more worth so much more glory to live with I hope that you've had those moments but my question to you this morning is have you had those moments in your experience with God have you had moments where you just suddenly feel the the air evacuate out of the room you have a sudden sense of the absurdity of life apart from God. The smallness of your life in the presence of the bigness of God. Have you had those kind of moments in your relationship with God? I hope you've had them in other areas and other avenues, but most importantly, I really hope that you have beheld the totally magnificent, glorious, awe-filling, even terrifying being that God is. Unfortunately, this doesn't happen enough amongst Christians today. And the reason for that is that we often neuter God. We neuter God in our day. We do. 
We focus on the gentleness, meekness, kindness, and intimacy of his presence, all of which are good and true. But that's not, even, that's not the total or even the most accurate or biblical picture of who God is. See, when men and women in the scriptures come into the presence of our almighty God, they are most often induced into a state of trembling, of fear, and an absolute sense of their inadequacy and smallness. Yet we too often today make far too much of ourselves and far too little of God. God becomes small enough, safe enough, controllable enough to fit into the accessible pockets in our lives so that we can place them there for a use at a later day, right? The Lord ends up becoming the, uh, the little God that, that we can call upon when our needs arise and then we hide him back in the cupboard so that he'll be out of sight and out of mind. The God that we often talk about today never makes demands upon us. He never commands us to total obedience. The Lord is simply our little Pez dispenser of grace, our Hail Mary miracle option, and our best buddy who approves of every single one of our life choices. And last of all, God is the ultimate insurance policy for us to get into the stairway of heaven. Right? That's oftentimes the way that we treat God. That's the way that, that, that we, even within the church, and I'm talking about the church grand, the church worldwide, even the church down the ages, has, has, has focused on God. There's so much preaching and teaching and, and evangelism and all of these things that make so much of the listener and the hearer and the one who sits in the seat, but too, way too little about God. So what can we do to have a correction to our vision of God? The answer is to look at the scriptures. That's the first place to look. Look at the scriptures. I've got a few passages here to read that shows how people respond to the presence of Lord, of the Lord. Exodus 3, 1 through 6, this is Moses when he first encounters the holy God. He says, it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Notice how Moses responds here. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. How did Job respond when the Lord revealed himself to Job? I love this. These are some of the final words that Job utters in his book. So the entire time, as Job's making his argument throughout the whole book of Job, he's making the argument that, that the Lord is being unjust and unfair and unkind to, to, to put him through these trials and these tribulations. Job deserves better. That's the argument that he makes the entire book. And then the Lord reveals himself to Job and he begins to ask him these amazing questions. You can just start reading it. I think it's in chapter 38 where the Lord begins to speak. And he just asks Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the world? Do you know where the storehouses of the snows are? 
Do you know how to feed the antelope? Do you know how to, do you know how to hook the, the Leviathan in the sea and be able to pull him up by his nostrils? He just keeps barraging Job with these questions. And the Lord is asserting his sacredness, his creatorship, his holiness. And after doing that, this is Job's words. He doesn't continue to argue. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What about when Elijah sees the Lord? When, the Elijah, when Elijah sees the Lord, we have this wonderful thing about the Lord appearing in a still small whisper, right? A quiet tone, a quiet note. And so we think about that's the intimacy of the Lord. And yet, how does Elijah face the Lord when he appears even in a still small whisper? It says, and when Elijah heard it, this is in 1 Kings 19, 13. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out. See, Elijah, even here in the still small quietness, the intimacy of the Lord still covers up his face before going out into his presence. What about in Jesus? How do the disciples respond to Jesus when he demonstrates his glory and his power? There's a fantastic episode in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Jesus is saying this to the disciples. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Just see that, see that picture, that image. You're in a boat in the middle of this lake. And there's this terrible storm. Think about being in like a great lake, not country pond, right? So like we're talking about a great lake. We're talking about a massive lake. We're talking about waves smashing up and over the sides of your, your little boat. Because these boats were not, they weren't like massive ships, right? And so the waves are crashing and careening over the edges and it's about to crumble. Imagine the fear that would take hold of your hearts. And that's what happens to the disciples. But he, starting in verse 38, Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Verse 41, how did the disciples now respond? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples are filled with fear in the presence of the glory of Jesus Christ. They're saying, we were terrified because we thought we were going to die. But now we are even more terrified because we see that this man can control these forces of nature. The truth is when men and women, the people of God, come face to face or within the presence of our God who has revealed himself in the word and in Jesus Christ the first response is usually a trembling fear a sense of breathlessness that crushing weight of I have entered a holy holy presence in a holy holy place have you ever responded to God in that way it's my question I don't believe that we can have a right vision of our lives and a right vision of our church unless we have that vision of the holiness of God. One place where we see this 
and this is where we're going to camp out at for a little while here, is in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 2 through 7. This is perhaps one of the most detailed scriptural texts on someone entering the presence of God. Let me read it for us from starting in verse 1 through verse 7. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah was different than many of the other prophets of his day. And he was different because of his status. Many of the other prophets came from blue-collared careers. Lots of them were farmers, shepherds, etc., Isaiah came from a family of high esteem, high station. And because of that, he had regular access to the kingly court in Jerusalem, where he served as a prophet during the reign of four kings. Isaiah was a prophet during the reign of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. You can read about all of them in 2 Kings and mostly 2 Chronicles, actually all of 2 Chronicles. And it's really cool because you actually see that Isaiah talks about a historical account from 2 Chronicles in his letter, and you read about Isaiah in 2 Chronicles, so you see the interwovenness of the Word of God, right? And we read about King Uzziah, the first one under whom Isaiah served as a prophet for the Lord. We read of Isaiah right there in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died. Now this would have left a tremor throughout the land and within the city. The most detailed account we have of Uzziah is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And that whole chapter, it starts with this beginning that King Uzziah reigned, and he was a good king. He was one of the good ones. And we know that that's not always the case for the kings of Jerusalem, but Uzziah was a good one. He wasn't perfect. We end up finding out that pride and arrogance take him over at a certain point. Because of that, the Lord does pronounce a judgment upon him. But for the most part, he was a good king. So there was a good king. And not only was he a good king, but he was a good king who reigned in Judah for 52 years. Think about that for a moment. 52 years ago was 1967. 1967. That's almost 20 years before I was born. 52 years with one king reigning over the land. Most people in Israel, most people in, in Judah and Jerusalem at that time would have only known Uzziah to be their king. They would never have had another ruler. So can you imagine the, the shaking that they would have to the core when they find out that King Uzziah died? How is this going to change stuff, they would say, right? I mean, we've had over that same period of time, over 52 years, we've had 10 presidents. Going back from President Johnson to present day President Trump, right? That's 
a massive amount of change that takes place within 52 years. And yet Judas had 52 years of stability. And suddenly it was gone. And as I said, right, not all the kings were good. So the question is, who's going to be the next king? What's he going to be like? So just imagine the sense of insecurity and uncertainty that could enfold the nation at that time. And then it's the middle of this tumult that Isaiah receives this vision. And he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. So the first thing you're seeing here is that while the nation may feel at a loss because of Uzziah's death, the Lord is declaring, remember who it is that is truly reigning. I am. The earthly kings may pass from generation to generation and may, they may even reign for decades upon decades. But when they die and go into the ground, remember who it is that still sits upon the throne. I do. And then we see this picture. The train of his robe filled the temple. If you've ever watched a royal wedding, then you've seen the train of the bride's gown, right? It's this very long, beautiful, elegant, costly fabric that is going all the way down the center aisle. And usually someone's in the, in, in the way back holding it up. One of her, I don't know, maidens or... I don't know what they do in London. I don't know. I'm not a Queensman. I'm, I'm a patriot. Anyways. But if you've seen this, you've seen, uh, you, you've seen that they still have this train. Well, in the ancient world, every single ruler had a train on their robe. And the length of your train was a visible demonstration of your power, is what it was. And so it says here that the train of the Lord filled the temple, was overflowing all the way and throughout the temple in this vision. And that's awesome because also in the ancient world, oftentimes when a king would be victorious over an enemy, what he would do is he would take a, a, a sword and cut the train off of the enemy's robe and then have it sewn onto his own. So the train shows two things. It shows power and it shows the amount of victories that you've had. And so the Lord is showing this image to Isaiah to say that I am the unconquerable and I am the undefeatable reigning sovereign king. So while your earthly rulers might die, fail, or suffer defeat, the Lord will always reign supreme. Let us remember that in our own lives when we're looking to put our allegiance into something. Right? And then in verse 2, we're introduced to these seraphim. What are the seraphim? What are they? Seraphim are, to put it in two quick words, blazing angels. They're blazing angels. The root of the word seraphim is from this, this idea of fieriness, right? So they have their own fiery glory in and of themselves. If we were to see a seraphim by ourselves, a seraphim to come down right now, we would all bow down and cover our eyes. That's what we would do. And yet, there's something interesting here about these seraphim. Even though they have their own innate, visible, burning glory, they have these wings. And what do they do with their wings? Well, two of them they use to fly, to hover over the throne of God. But two of their other wings they use to cover their faces, and the other two to cover their feet. Why are they doing that? Why are they covering their faces and their feet? Because it means that from head to foot, they are unworthy to stand in the glorious presence of God. These burning angels of fiery glory in and of themselves are not worthy to behold or stand in the presence of God's glory. That's incredible how glorious God is. They pale in comparison 
to his presence. And in their shielded state, they call out to one another. They, they are professing this. They're confessing that the Lord is so much more glorious than them. And how do they do that? By yelling out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is full of his glory. There's a technical name for this song. It's called the Trisagion. Trisagion means the thrice holy. See, in both the Old and the New Testaments, if the authors wanted to draw attention uh, to something in their text, they would do something called repetition, right? We do it differently now. We have exclamation points, and we have bold face, or we can use all capital letters or something like that, right? Which is why if you write a text to someone and the caps lock is on, you're like, oh, you have to apologize, you know, because it feels like you're yelling at them. Yes, I will get the milk. Oh, now you're in the doghouse because you left the caps lock on, right? So, well, in the ancient world, they didn't use exclamation points. They didn't have caps lock. They didn't have bold face. What they did is they had repetition. And so if they wanted to draw attention to something, they would repeat it. We see this in John's gospel. John's gospel, Jesus is constantly saying, truly, truly, I say unto you, right? What he's saying there is, amen, amen, I say unto you. He's saying, I'm about to speak something that has a ton of truth to it. You need to listen up, audience. Okay, so that happens not only in Jesus' day, but it happens in the Old Testament. Um, this is a really funny episode of it in the, in the book of Genesis when we read about Abraham and there's this battle that he takes place in. And we read about him uh, fighting in the, in, in the bitumen pits. Have you ever heard about the, the bitumen pits? It's such a hard word to pronounce. You want to know why it's really hard to pronounce? Because we have no idea what those pits really are made of. We just insert that word bitumen today. Because in the Hebrew, they actually just say the pity pits. Yeah, the pit, the pit pits is what they say. It's just reduplicating the word pit to demonstrate that those pits are really pity pits. Right? <laughs> but what the angels are saying here in repeating this word holy, not just two times, but three times, is drawing something very significant for us. R.C. Sproul explains it perfectly in this quote. He says, only once... In sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, love, love. Or mercy, mercy, mercy. Or wrath, wrath, wrath. Or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, holy, holy. And that the whole earth is full of his glory. When the Bible declares that God is holy thrice times, three times, something is being declared about the very essence of his existence. We are right here, based on the pronouncement of the seraphim, able to look into and examine the very core of God's identity. Isn't it amazing? That the Lord of all the universe should demonstrate and show himself to us through the prophet Isaiah right here. And at the core of God's identity is holiness. And from that holiness, everything else flows out of God. So what does the scripture mean when it declares that God is holy? Matt alluded to it earlier for us. Holy means to be set apart. To be unique. We actually have a phrase today that kind of is derived from the word of holiness, which is a cut above. It's one of the phrases that we use today. Something is a cut above. When we talk about the Lord being set apart, unique, 
cut apart, uh, uh, cut above. We're saying that he is totally other and different than anything else. Everything else in existence is separate from him. He transcends all of it. And the reason for this is because he is holy in his nature as the creator God. He is the only one who can be called the I am. Do you realize that? When Moses asks someone for their identity, no one else can say I am except for God. Nothing else. Everything else has to say I exist as such and such. I have such and such an identity. Because we derive our identity from the Creator. But where does the Creator derive His identity from? No one else. Because He's uncreated. Because before anything was created, He exists. Therefore, He can exclaim, I am. When the tree is asked, tree, how do you exist? If the tree could speak, if C.S. Lewis had his dream and all the trees in, in the world would have life to them and would speak, the trees would say, well, I exist because the Lord created me to be a tree. He created me to have treeishness. He created me to have rootishness and leavishness. Right? If, if Moses were to ask you, who are you? You would have to give a name, an identity. And you could say, I got my name and my identity from my parents on the one level, but even transcending that, my name and my identity, my attributes, everything about my life, I derive from my true creator. See, there's a technical term for this. I know I'm throwing a lot of technical terms, but it's good. It's called contingent. Everything else is contingent upon the Lord. If the Lord says exist, it exists. If the Lord says don't exist, it ceases to exist. If the Lord says you are this, you are, you are Scott, then I am Scott. I can't do anything about that to change my identity or who I am. I am not sovereign in control of any facet of my life. And therefore everything that I am and everything that I have is truly His. And you can say that about every single atom in existence. You can say that about every single spirit in existence. Except for one. The Holy Lord God. Because He is uncreated. He is not contingent. He is independent. He is free. And because by His nature He is holy, it means that everything He does is holy and perfect. When we talk about the love of God, the love of God is a holy and perfect love. When we talk about the judgments of God, His judgments are holy and perfect. When we talk about His mercy, He is perfect and holy in His mercy. When we talk about His wrath, He is perfect and holy in His wrath. His grace, He is perfect and holy in His grace. And everything He does, He is holy. And if you want to read more about this, I'm, I'm going to honestly recommend to you R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, from which I'm deriving a lot of this. If you haven't read it, it's truly an eye-opening, wonderful book to read as a Christian. So now imagine being carried up into the scene as Isaiah. How do you think you'd respond when you come face to face with seraphim who have to cover their faces in the holiness of God? How do you think you would respond in that moment? Verse 5, we have Isaiah's response. And I said, woe is me. He pronounces a judgment upon himself. That's what it means to say, woe is me. 
I pronounce judgment upon myself. And it says, for I am lost. I hate this translation. I hate it. It's inaccurate. The best translation actually comes from the King James Version. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am unmade. I am unraveled. I am disintegrated. That's the best way to look at this word. Isaiah is literally pronouncing a judgment of his decreation in the presence of the holiness of God. He's saying, I am guilty. Just being in his presence. I am guilty. Notice the Lord hasn't even said anything. The Lord hasn't had to lay out a rap sheet. The Lord hasn't had to say, look, I'm going to count up your iniquities for you. Isaiah just stands in his presence and says, guilty, I am guilty, and I deserve to be vanquished and disintegrated in the holiness of your presence, O Lord. I wonder what would happen if we actually wrote worship songs and prayers like this. <laughs> Maybe we should write a worship song based on Isaiah 6. I mean, because if a man like Isaiah, who by all accounts is upright, blameless, and obedient in so many ways, shapes, and forms, if a man like him could pronounce judgment upon himself in the face of God's holiness, how would I fare? It's the first thing I think of. And seeing the holy king upon his throne, Isaiah declares, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Isaiah is confessing here a crucial and valuable lesson for us. No one is worthy to stand in the presence of God. Let me say this again. The lesson here is that no one is worthy to stand in the presence of God. Sometimes I hear people say, why doesn't God just come down and show himself to me? Why doesn't the Lord, if, if, if the Lord wants to just, if God wants to prove himself, it's already a cautious word right there. If God's going to prove himself to me so that I can believe, I need him to, to come down right here, right now. Let me be honest with us for a moment. It's an act of grace that God doesn't come down in that moment. It's an act of grace that God doesn't come down to this earth and show himself in the fullness of his glory. Because if he were to do so, immediately we would be disintegrated and vanquished. Remember the movie Independence Day? When the alien drops the laser beam in all of, I think it's New York or LA, I don't know what city it was. The whole thing just gets burnt up to a crisp. Yeah. There were multiple cities. Everything is vanquished. That's what would happen on a grander scale, on a larger scale, if the Lord were actually to descend in his full glory and show himself as he truly is. And so the Lord has been gracious in the fact that he has hidden himself from us. He's been gracious in the fact that he's veiled himself. That when he has come down, he came down in a burning bush. When he has come down, he's come down in a pillar of cloud. When he came down, he came down in a pillar of fire. Like, this is good for us. It's gracious towards us. And even then, it was so radiant and holy that men and women had to hide their faces. Even just coming down in that veiled form. And it was gracious that he came down veiled and fleshed in Jesus Christ. Because you saw the little tiny glimpse of the glory of Jesus that the, that the disciples saw on the boat. And they were trembling over that. Imagine if it was unveiled the world to see. 
So when we get a tiny glimpse of God's holy perfection, every defense that we might muster about our own inherent goodness suddenly collapses just as it did for Isaiah. I go to Sproul again here, this fantastic thing he has to say. In that single moment, all of his self-esteem was shattered. In a brief second, he was exposed, made naked beneath the gaze of the absolute standard of holiness. As long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, he was able to sustain a lofty opinion of his own character. But the instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed, morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He came apart. His sense of integrity collapsed. Does this mean that Isaiah is hopeless in the presence of a holy God? Does this mean that we are hopeless in the presence of a holy God. Will he and us simply be totally annihilated and vanquished? We have that answer in this text as well. No. Because the holy mercy, because, because the Lord, the holy Lord, is wholly, perfectly merciful from his throne. In verse 6 we read about the seraphim flying off and picking up this burning coal. And notice something here about this coal. Remember what the seraphim are. They're angels of fire, right? Heavenly fire. Maybe fire made hotter than the sun, perhaps. Right? So these angels of fire, he goes to, to reach out and grab one of these coals and notice what he picks it up with. Tongs. An angel of fire can't withstand the heat of this coal. Just think about that for a moment. Consider that for a moment. And he takes that coal that is too hot for him to handle in his own hand, that he needs to use tongs, and he presses it to the lips of Isaiah. Just think of that image. I've had little flecks of sparks from like the fire fall upon my, my knees and I'm ready to call 911 and get a first aid kit, right? I gotta amputate my leg. This angel is taking a coal that is hotter than the sun and pressing it to the lips, the sensitive, nerve-filled lips of Isaiah, pressing it there. And notice what's pronounced in verse 7. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. God responds to Isaiah's cry of unworthiness by making him worthy through purification to stand in his holy presence. Notice God doesn't minimize Isaiah's confession of sin. Right? That's not how God responds. When Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm undone. The Lord doesn't say, Isaiah, stop being melodramatic, man. Right? <laughs> He doesn't minimize it. He's not like, Isaiah, come on, you're going too far with this. You're a good guy. Come on, get up, buddy. Right? Stop beating yourself. Come on. Right? That's not how the Lord responds. We should take note of that. Because I think it's sometimes the way that we respond to the sin in our own lives and in others' lives, right? Have you ever made this statement or had this thought? Hi, ah, I know you've sinned or I know I've sinned, but I mean, it's okay. We all sin. It's, it's not really a big deal because we all sin, right? And I mean, every single sin puts us in guilt in front of God, but it's okay. He's going to forgive us. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Right, buddy? Come on. Is, is that not kind of the way that we sometimes approach sin? 
We sometimes, we basically approach sin like it's flatulence. Seriously. We're like, I mean, yeah, I know it's gross, and, but hey, come on, everybody does it. And you, know, you don't want to do it in public, but sometimes you make a mistake. You know, sometimes you can't get to the bathroom. <laughs> like, how can we treat sin that way when we're looking at the way that God treats it in, in His presence when Isaiah makes that confession right here? Sin is supposed to break us, shatter us, when we really understand what we're doing when we sin. That we are taking the name of the God who created us and we're throwing His name in the dirt. Because we're made to represent God, right? So if we're made to represent God and we represent Him by sinning in our lives, what are we saying to the rest of the created order? What are we saying to other humanity, to everyone else in humanity? We're saying that I represent God by sinning. That ought to shatter us, break us to the core. Because that's the way that God responds here to Isaiah. He says, yes, you are undone. Unless you have atonement. Unless you have purification. And notice something here about the purification imaged in this coal. This atonement is terrible. It's terrible. A hot coal pressed to the lips, that's torture, isn't it? That's torture. And yet the Lord wants us to see that this is the imagery of atonement. Why does He want us to see that? Well, it's because that means what Christ endures on the cross, who's the ultimate fulfillment of this image here, was torment, was torture. Our sins and the sins of His people, the sins of the world that were placed upon Him led Him to torment. When He yelled out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When He was standing in the garden knowing what was coming before Him and He's sweating out drops of blood, He's not being melodramatic. He knows what is about to come. He's experienced what does come upon the cross. It is a spiritual anguish that is so much greater than a blazing coal of sun heat pressed to the lips of someone. That's what Christ experiences by accomplishing atonement for us. Atonement is torturous. The image of the coal also teaches us something else about purity. It reminds us just how painful it can be for God to work in our lives sometimes. It reminds us just how painful it can be for God to work in our lives. See, God's presence is not always going to bring warm butterflies and hot cocoa in your soul. Often there's going to be cutting, tearing, almost a feeling of being ripped apart. And this passage is demonstrating and showing to us that this is good. Why? Think about it. God in purifying us is killing our old selves. Do you think killing feels good? <laughs> I've never been murdered, but I don't think it would feel good. But that's what the Lord is doing in a spiritual sense. He is putting to death the old self. And in doing that, it will be painful to be sanctified by the Lord. Sometimes it will feel tormenting. And when this anguish in the soul is happening, I want you to think, good, this is great. This is an image of God's grace. Why? Because he's, he's ripping apart the old, selfish, self-centered, idolatrous, angry, wrathful, lustful, greedy self. He's ripping that away. And it doesn't feel good, but what he's doing is he's replacing it with his perfection. 
So when that's happening in your life, say, thank you, Lord. Dig into that. Don't try to escape it. Don't try to go through it alone either. Grab a brother and sister in Christ who's going through it as well. That's part of what accountability is all about. The Holy Spirit is drawing us into perfect union with the Father and with the Son and with Himself in those moments. When the torment happens and the sin is being killed. And it's good. So when that battle's taking place inside of you this week, when you're, you're lustful and you're greedy, you're self-centered, you're angry, the old self is waking up and you feel this battle raging in your soul. Say, thank you, Lord, for awakening me to that. Lord, kill it. Help kill it. I want to be free from it. Now, why is this message here so important as we launch a series on the church? The reason why this message of the holiness of God is so important to begin a series on the church is the church is called to be holy. The church is called to be holy just as God is holy. Read this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. He writes this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Notice, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. You also be holy in all your conduct. <laughs> Since it is written... He refers here to what the Lord said to Israel in the first place. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is where we pick up next week. When we start to look at the holiness of the call in our lives. But if we're going to look at that, if we're going to look at the call to be holy in our own lives, I thought it made sense to first look at the true and holy one who reigns above all, undefeated, unconquerable. See, as you walk about your day and engage in your work, you talk to people and you make choices and decisions in your life, as you're just going through this year that we call 2020, right? Put this little number designation on it to help us be able to keep track of history and all of that. So we're walking through the history of 2020 in our own lives. What I would love for you to see always before you is the image that Isaiah gives us here. The Holy Lord, high and lifted up, His train filling the temple, His glory filling the earth. The Lord, with a radiance brighter and a heat hotter than the blazing of the sun. See His holiness, and then you'll be able to walk in holiness. But the seeing has to come before the walking. So may His glory, His holiness be ever present before you in 2020. May the Lord be gracious to do this for you. So that together, as a family, we can behold His glory. And live for Him as holy, loving, compassionate, and passionate children of the Holy, Holy, Holy One. Pray with me. Heavenly Father. I thank you for this vision that you gave to your servant Isaiah. I thank you, Lord, for the testimony, the overwhelming testimony of your people coming before your presence, being filled with awe, fear, with trembling, 
falling down on their faces before you. Heavenly Father, I pray that every single one of us here would know what that means in our own lives. Would experience it in our own lives. That as we come before you in prayer, as we come to read your word, as we come to sing your praises, as we come to your table today to participate in the remembrance of the atonement, and the remembrance of the one who, was, who truly took the burning, blazing coal of judgment upon himself. Father, I pray that we would be struck and know your holiness. We would be transformed by your holiness. That we would be conformed to your holiness. We would live to praise and worship you the Holy, Holy, Holy One.